This is the uh, chapter on realization, and uh, this section is where Venerable Analayo uh, goes into some investigations about Nibbana. So this first part is called Nibbana and its ethical implications. Taken in its literal sense, Nibbana refers to the going out of a lamp or a fire. The image of an extinguished lamp occurs, in fact, several times in the discourses as a description of the experience of Nibbana. And um, that's uh, various different passages in the um, Diganikaya, Sangyutta, Anguttara, and also in the uh, Teragata and Terigata. And uh, probably one of the most well-known is the verses of uh, the Bhikkhuni um, Patachara, describing her enlightenment and uh, going into uh, Kuti and putting out the um, the candle. And uh, the uh, ex- she said the extinguishing of, of her ignorance was like the putting out of the, the flame of the candle. That's, uh, where are we? Uh, Terry Guitar, verse 116. Is that where you find that? The corresponding verb nibayati means, quote, to be extinguished, unquote, or to become cool, quote, unquote. Such extinction is probably best understood in a passive sense, when the fires of lust, aversion, and delusion become cool through lack of fuel. The metaphor of an extinguished fire in its ancient Indian context has nuances of calmness, independence, and release. And that's uh, a central theme that uh, Ajahn Tanisaro pursues in his um, uh, book called Mind Like Fire Unbound. And um, there's a couple of uh, passages uh, from him, firstly from Wings to Awakening and then from Mind Like Fire Unbound. Nibbana, which literally means the extinguishing of a fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at his, the Buddha's, time. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel that they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. The ex- uh, image of an extinguished fire carried no connotations of annihilation for the early Buddhists. Rather, the aspects of fire that to them had significance for the mind-fire analogy are these. Fire, when burning, is in a state of agitation, dependence, attachment and entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance. Extinguished, it becomes calm, independent, indeterminate and unattached. It lets go of its sustenance and is released. The same nexus of events applied to the workings of the mind occurs repeatedly in canonical passages describing the attainment of the goal. So that uh, the fire was seen as like a, like a, a sort of principle of energy, and um, that the so the fire principle was when a fire went out, the, the fire principle was released 
from the fuel um, and where the fuel is burning then um, it's in a state of clinging and entrapment it's also significant that the word um, upadana uh, literally means clinging and literally means fuel it's the same word um, it's not like different words that are spelt the same like minute and minute but it's the same word um, for uh, uh, for fuel and for clinging and so that uh, there's also part of that um, uh, that quality of uh, of nibbana and how nibbana is realized through the enemy of, of clinging is also related to this fire and fuel uh, analogy judging by the evidence in the discourses contemporary ascetics and philosophers use the term nibbana with predominantly positive connotations the Brahmajala Sutta, for example, lists five, uh, five positions advocating Nibbāna here and now, which were five different conceptions of happiness, the pleasures of worldly sensuality and the four levels of absorption. Another discourse reports a wanderer taking Nibbāna to refer to health and mental well-being. That's the Magandhya Sutta, uh, so, uh, Sutta number 75 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Similar positive connotations underlie the standard definition in the Pali discourses, according to which Nibbāna stands for freedom from the unwholesome mental roots of lust, anger and delusion. Also, um, uh, maybe going, going back to the um, clinging and fuel and, um, and such, that one of the things when talking about the um, Panchupadana Kanda, the five, uh, the five Kandas or the five uh, focuses of uh, identification and grasping. The um, upadana means uh, grasping, and uh, kanda, uh, um, uh, so, uh, and upadana also means fuel, and kanda means a lump or a group or a heap. So uh, one a point that Richard Gombrich uh, made, who is a um, professor of Sanskrit and Pali at Oxford for some time, and, and was the head of the Pali Tech Society, he said, Panchupadana Kanda is, is, gives you a mental image of carrying five different bundles of, of fuel. So if you imagine a, uh, a Brahmin whose job is to tend the, the uh, spiritual fires, the holy fires, and they have a, uh, an acolyte, an attendant, whose job is to collect the fuel, it's like collect, having five bundles of fuel that you're carrying all at the same time. So that the image is one of incredible, uh, incredible awkwardness and difficult, difficulty, you've got, you know, bundle of wood on this shoulder and that shoulder under this arm under that arm and another bundle on your head it's it's a real schlamazel it's a a mess a complicated and awkward and difficult so that image that that term panchupadana kanda like the five bundles of fuel would also carry that uh, image of um burdensomeness Another discourse reports a wanderer, uh, say, referring to taking nibbana to refer to health and mental well-being. So uh, nibbana stands for freedom from the unwholesome mental roots of lust, anger, and delusion. This definition highlights, in particular, the ethical implications of realizing nibbana. 
These ethical implications require further examination, since, at times, realization of Nibbana has been taken to imply the transcendence of ethical values. And he quotes um, someone called Van Zeist back in 1961 uh, proposing that. Also, it's a, it's a common perception in some other spiritual traditions and some of the northern Buddhist schools that uh, when someone's enlightened, they have transcended the ethical norms. And so you find uh, some of the behaviors of the supposedly enlightened masters of different different schools as, uh, as being pretty wild and, and woolly. The uh, sort of crazy, quote-unquote, crazy wisdom masters. Although the term crazy wisdom, which was coined by uh, Chogyam Trungpa, um, when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked about that term, he said, crazy wisdom? No such thing. Crazy wisdom is just crazy. <laughs> so it was a, a creation by um, Trungpa Rinpoche um, for his own reasons, but uh, the Dalai Lama did not advocate there's any, any such thing as, as uh, crazy wisdom that uh, you can really substantiate with Buddha Dharma. Such transcendence seems, at first sight, to be advocated in the Samana Mandika Sutta, since this discourse associates awakening with the complete cessation of wholesome ethical conduct. And that sutta, the Samana Mandika Sutta, is in the Majima, is sutta number 78 in the Majima Nikaya. On similar lines, other passages in the Pali Canon speak in praise of going beyond both good and evil. And that's also a, a, a familiar theme of Lumpur Cha. So, so you find that frequently in the Dhammapada, also in the um, uh, Suttanipata. There's many verses that talk about that, um, going beyond both good and evil. But taking the passage from the Samana, Samana Mandika Sutta first, a close examination of the discourse reveals that this particular statement does not refer to the abandoning of ethical conduct, but only to the fact that arahants no longer identify with their virtuous behavior. Regarding the other passages, which speak of going beyond good and evil, one needs to distinguish clearly between the Pali terms translated as good, which can either be kusala or punya, Although the two terms cannot be completely separated from each other, in canonical usage, they often carry quite distinct meanings. While punya mostly denotes deeds of positive merit, kusala includes any type of wholesomeness, including the realization of nibbana. So that uh, that Samana Mandika Sutta is kind of interesting because it's and it uh, the Buddha goes uh, it starts off by. Um, one of his lay disciples, Panchakanga the carpenter, uh, meeting up with uh, some other another wanderer, this um, uh, called Samana, Samana Mandika, and he goes to listen to his teaching. And he uh, and he says, when someone has established their their, their their mind in wholesomeness, they've given up unwholesome thought, unwholesome speech, unwholesome action, um, and unwholesome intentions. And that's how that's how wholesomeness is is fully established. And then Panchakanga neither affirms or denies that particular statement, but says, hmm, I wonder what the Buddha will say about this. So then he goes and asks the, the, the Buddha, and the Buddha gives this wonderfully thorough analysis. So that's, it's worth uh, reading if you're interested in the Sutta 78 in the Majima. 
And then for each thing that the Buddha, each um, uh, of those aspects, um, wholesome uh, intention, wholesome action, wholesome um, uh, speech, and uh, and so forth. That he says, and how does and how does the the wise noble disciple uh, give up wholesome action, or give up wholesome intention, or give up wholesome speech? And then and what he spoke and what he talks about is non-identification. That the 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 way of giving up is not claiming those actions or thoughts or intentions as as me and mine, and so that that uh, it's not a matter of of uh, the um, the person no longer following ethical norms uh, in terms of the conventions of rules and society and so on, but rather they're they're letting go of the uh, egotistical claiming and identification with that. What arahants have gone beyond, quote unquote, is the accumulation of karma. They have transcended the generation of good punya and of its opposite, evil, papa. But the same cannot be said of wholesomeness, kusala. In fact, by eradicating all unwholesome, akusala states of mind, arahants become the highest embodiment of wholesomeness, kusala. So much is this the case that, as indicated in the Samana Mandika Sutta, they are spontaneously virtuous and do not even identify with their virtue. Uh, there's uh, also there's uh, in the verses that the Buddha um, uh, recites or, or states to to Mara just before his enlightenment, when Mara is trying to persuade him to give up his his uh, meditation and to um, make offerings and, cre- and create merit, the Buddha says, I, uh, "You know, I know you, evil one, Namuchi." Yeah, <laughs> and he says something along the lines of. Speak to those of merit. Uh, speak of merit to those who stand in need of it. Like, yeah, you know, where, where where I'm headed, I don't need merit. <laughs> so it's not a matter of accumulating good uh, karma, because the, his uh, his intention was was focused beyond any kind of accumulation. So I think that's a helpful little point that Venerable Analio makes. And it might seem a little bit subtle, but um, whereas um, punya is a kind of uh, store of, of blessings or good karma, then uh, the quality of wholesomeness is somehow it's like a, of a of a deeper and more complete strata. As he says, it's the um, uh, yeah, arahants uh, uh, become the highest embodiment of wholesomeness. So the arahant is the highest embodiment of of what is kusala. Nibbana, at least as understood by the Buddha has quite definite ethical implications. Arahants are simply unable to commit an immoral act, since with their full realization of Nibbāna, all unwholesome states of mind have been extinguished. The presence of any unwholesome thought, speech or deed would therefore directly contradict the claim to being an Arahant. And um, in the... the, uh, uh, Footnote: He quotes a few different passages. Uh, one of which is in the um, uh, the Majima, it's Sutta number seventy-six, the Sandaka Sutta, where the, um, uh, the as it says, the ethical perfection of arahants is such that they are incapable of deliberately depriving a, a living being of life, of stealing, of engaging in any form of sexual intercourse, of lying 
and also of enjoying sensual pleasures by storing things up as householders do. So that's uh, the Sandaka Sutta um, describes that. And that is uh, Sutta number 76 in the Majima. In the Vimangsaka Sutta, uh, which means the inquirer, and which is also in the Majima, and that is the Vimangsa is Sutta number 47. The Vimangsaka Sutta, the Buddha applied this principle even to himself, openly inviting prospective disciples to examine his claim to full awakening by thoroughly investigating and observing his behavior and deeds. Only if no trace of unwholesomeness was found, he explained, would it be reasonable for them to place their confidence in him as a teacher. Even a Buddha should exemplify his teachings by his deeds, as indeed he did. That which the Buddha taught was in complete conformity with his behavior. And um, there's a, a number of passages where he says, as he, uh, the Tathagata, as he says, so he does, as he does, so he says. Um, and uh, there is um, no um, sort of hidden conduct or, or, or hidden teachings even. That which the Buddha taught was in complete conformity with his behavior. This was so much the case that even after his full awakening, the Buddha still engaged in those activities of restraint and careful consideration that had brought about purification in the first place. If the Buddha made himself measurable by common standards of ethical purity, there is little scope for finding moral double standards in his teaching. So that uh, the Buddha taught by example. So he would—he uh, was a monk. He followed the uh, the, the vinaya and uh, kept all the rules that he expected the other sangha members uh, to to keep and to, to live by. And uh, it reminds me of a, of a conversation between um, uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, the young uh, Ajahn Sumedho many years ago. And they were uh, somehow or other the subject of money had had come up, and. Uh, and uh, Ajahn Chah made the comment, uh, you know, Sumedho, I could, uh, if I wanted to, I, I could, I could use money and I uh, could accept it and, and handle it and and use it to um, to run uh, the monastery if I wanted to, um, you know, and it wouldn't disturb my mind at all. Uh, and and so the young uh, Ajahn Sumedho said, oh, well, okay, it's interesting to hear that. And he said, but do you know why I don't? <clears throat> do you know why I don't handle money? I don't use it and own it. And so, of course, Ajahn Samadhi said, no. <laughs> he said, because of you. <laughs> because uh, if I uh, if I was uh, receiving money and handling it, had my own bank account and, and such like, then you would say, well, the Ajahn does it, so it must be okay. And so then um, you follow the example of, of the teacher. So the, the Buddha lived you know, fully in accordance with his, uh, with his uh, standards of training for the, for the monastic community, and uh, exemplified uh, standards of, of conduct also in, in practicing meditation so that he would um, he said uh, mindfulness of breathing was a uh, was one of his you know, um, one of the most pleasant abidings and he was often been uh, often doing walking meditation when you think well he doesn't quote unquote need to meditate <laughs> but he uh, since he's totally enlightened buddha but he enjoyed it, and uh, as he said, the mindfulness of breathing is a, a pleasant uh, abiding place. Uh, even if awakening takes place only at the level of stream entry, the experience of Nibbāna still has definite ethical consequences. 
A major consequence of realizing stream entry is that stream enterers become unable to commit a breach of ethical conduct serious enough to lead to a lower rebirth. So a stream enterer is incapable of killing their own parents or of, um, causing a schism in the Sangha or of um, shedding the, the blood of a, a Buddha or killing a, an Arahant. You think that stream enterers had the behavior a little bit more polished than that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, stream enterers are still subject to uh, uh, ill will and uh, desire, so uh, they, uh, the, the only things they can't do is kill Arahants and their parents and uh, cause, deliberately cause a, a schism, a rift in the Sangha, division in the Sangha, and to shed the blood of a Buddha. <clears throat> Actually, is it not the five precepts? That's what I read three times. It's not the normal five precepts. Um, sometimes it's it's um, it, there. There's a phrase like they are perfect in in moral conduct, but um, it's uh, you know, that's not it's not stated that way everywhere. Um, sometimes it's just uh, stated in terms of uh, realizing all that arises passes away, and that sila isn't mentioned at all. But uh, this is um, the quotation where he, uh, let's see, it's, um, it's in the, uh, the Majima, let's see, did I note that down? No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, it's uh, in, in the Majima, it, uh, there's a little list of um, things that are impossible for a stream enterer to do, and that's that the list is those, those things. There's also the situation when Ananda asks the Buddha to lay down rules for the monks, so they would they, and then there's the reply that there was no need for it because the, even the most stupid one of the monks was a Sotapanna. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Sometimes it's also interpreted that they are almost perfect, the Sotapanna, so they, I don't know. Uh, well, the, the, uh, the, the story goes that for the first few years then the the uh, the buddha didn't establish any vinya rules and it was only when serious um uh seriously dis disruptive or destructive actions were took place then he started to lay things down um so that uh even if someone's a stream enter they can still make pretty stupid choices sometimes The answer from the Buddha, we don't need rules yet because they're all Sotapanas? Or did I not completely remember? Um, uh, I'm not sure if that if you're remembering it correctly. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd have to, to look at the text. But um, uh, when Ananda says, please, or, or Sariputta says, please lay, lay down the Vinaya, he said, no, I, I won't lay it down until there's a particular cause. So he didn't like like sort of the, the Napoleonic laws of sort of sitting down and writing a whole rule book from scratch, like uh, Napoleon's people. Uh, he did it more like the British system, where just when something happens, then you you, set, you you make a rule about it. But if it hasn't happened, you don't make a rule about it. So it's much more haphazard. So he uh, he says when there is um, sort of corruption in the sangha, then I'll establish a a, a rule. So the um, uh, I think that's the, what the conversation that you're, you're, that you're thinking of, um, and that it's um, there's another conversation that happens where 
I think it's Mahakasapa asks the Buddha later on in his life, where um, why is it that in the beginning there was lots of arahants and very few rules, and now there's lots of rules and very few arahants? And so that it's in that dialogue, and that's sort of closer towards the end of the Buddha's life when, when that when that happens. And he said because the the teaching has spread and so many more people coming in, and so then the 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 standard of of um, people candidates are, is getting much more varied, and that uh, they aren't coming in through having had personal contact with him or having been uh, long-standing practitioners or having um, the kind of um, paramita to be uh, uh, say having discovered the teaching when it was very really, you know very very little known and, and very um, uh, in a very limited area of, of India. So I think you're. Uh, you might be conflating those two different dialogues. So, just to finish that paragraph, although they have not yet reached the level of ethical perfection of the Buddha or an Arahant, the first realization of Nibbana has already caused an irreversible ethical change. In order to provide additional perspectives on Nibbana, I will now briefly consider some canonical descriptions of it. So before I go on to that, any other questions, comments, reflections? Arjun, the, um, in transmissions, um, say Zenji, he, he would say that um, his big question was if I already had Buddha nature, what, what if what? I, if I already had Buddha nature, what would I have to become enlightened? Um, and he said that his conclusion at the end was that when a person sits or when a person realizes the mind that is the unborn mind that is free from thoughts, there can be no difference between you and an enlightened person. Because there's no there's no karma being created, it's just pure, isn't it? It's unborn. And that that's about where you should be looking, you know. That's, but they also sort of go along with tell her to want enlightenment is a big mistake because if you want it, you've got to make it into a concept. And if you make it into a concept it can't be unborn. So it's that simple unborn mind that you realise that comes through practice rather than an attainment, you know. I think I just made it sound like the same, you know. Yes, very regularly. And in, in his Surigama Sutras, you know, they say to, when they ask Avalokiteshvara, um, which is the um, fastest way to become enlightened, he said, sound. Mm-hmm. Turn the sound inwards, you know, the inner sound. Mm-hmm. Then you're free from thought, you're free from like intention. It says, return the hearing to, li- to listen to the self-nature, then the self-nature realizes the true way. Something like that. Okay, uh, let's carry on. So this is uh, the early Buddhist conception of Nibbana. So um, as it happens, many of the passages that Venerable Anayo quotes are in this um, particular book called The Island, which... Uh, shamelessly self-promote. So if you want more of these, or follow up many of these quotations, they're, they're all in here. Um, I was surprised, but he sort of goes through the same, pretty much exactly the same list that Ajahn Pasana and I uh, covered. And, uh, and this book was written before the island was, so it wasn't like he was going through our list and <laughs> putting them here. So they line up pretty, pretty closely, the kind of things that we, we addressed. He, he does it much more briefly here. This is uh, several hundred pages of, of uh, similar references. 
The early Buddhist conception of Nibbana was not easily understood by contemporary ascetics and philosophers. The Buddha's consistent refusal to go along with any of the four standard propositions about the survival or the annihilation of an arahant after death was rather bewildering to his contemporaries. According to the Buddha, to entertain these different propositions was as futile as to speculate about the direction in which a fire had departed once it has gone out. And that, um, you'll remember, is the referring to the dialogue with Vachagota, our indefatigable inquirer, the great Vachagota. Um, and uh, so that the four are... Um, after after the death of the body, an arahant exists. Number two, they don't exist. Number three, they both exist and do not exist. And number four, they neither exist nor not exist. It's the classical quadrilemma, it's called. So exist, doesn't exist, both and neither. And um, so the Buddha would stoically and, and resolutely uh, say, no, that doesn't apply. And so this is uh, the dialogue with, uh, with the Vachagota, who was a wanderer. He wasn't a, a, a disciple of the Buddha, but he was a very frequent visitor. And eventually he became his, um, um, a monastic disciple and became an arahant. So I think there's a Hollywood movie there, Vachagota's journey, somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the mix. So Vacha has just asked him about um, uh, uh, a bhikkhu whose mind is thus liberated. Where does he reappear after death? Reappear, Vacha does not apply. In that case, Master Gotama, he does not reappear. Does not reappear, Vacha does not apply. So he both does and does not reappear, doesn't apply. He neither does nor does not reappear, does not apply. So then Vacha Gotama says, Here I am bewildered, Master Gotama, here I am confused. The small degree of understanding which had come from our earlier conversations has now disappeared. Certainly you are bewildered, Vacha. Certainly you are confused. This Dhamma is deep, Vacha. It is hard to see and hard to understand. Peaceful, sublime, and beyond the scope of mere reasoning. Subtle, only to be experienced by the wise. It's difficult for those with other views who follow other teachings, other aims, and other teachers to understand. As this is so, I will ask you some questions. Please answer them as you like. What do you think, Vacha? Suppose a fire were burning in front of you. Would you know that there is a fire burning in front of me? I would, Master Gautama. And suppose someone were to ask you, Vacha, this fire burning in front of you, what is it burning dependent upon? How would you reply? I would reply, this fire is burning dependent on grass and sticks. So if the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that this fire that was burning has gone out? I would, Master Gautama. And suppose that someone were to ask you, this fire that has now gone out, in which direction has it gone? To the east, the west, the north, or the south? Being asked thus, how would you answer? That does not apply, Master Gotama. The fire burned dependent on its fuel. Uh, if no more fuel is added to it, it is simply reckoned as gone out, nibuto. Even so, Vacha, the Tathagata has abandoned any material form, and this is that passage I was quoting um, the other day that I'm very fond of, the Tathagata, the enlightened being, has abandoned any material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He has cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, 
deprived it of the conditions for existence, and rendered it incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vajra. He is profound, boundless, unfathomable like the ocean. The term reappears does not apply. The term does not reappear does not apply. The term both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. The term neither reappears nor does not reappear does not apply. So too, any feeling, so the Tathagata has abandoned any feeling, any perception, any mental formations, any consciousness, by which one describing, or you trying to describe the Tathagata, might describe him. That the Tathagata has abandoned. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of consciousness, Vacha. He is profound, boundless, unfathomable, like the ocean. So that's one of the great dialogues of the Buddha. It is trusty disciple Vacha and Gota. According to the Buddha, to entertain these different propositions was as futile as to speculate about the direction in which a fire had departed once it has gone out. So the way you ask the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. When you say, where did it go? Like, where doesn't apply? So the way you put the question presumes a reality that does not exist. The Buddha found the existing ways of describing a state of realization or awakening inadequate to his realization. His understanding of Nibbāna constituted a radical departure from the conceptions of the time. He was well aware of this himself, and after his awakening he immediately reflected on the difficulty of conveying what he had realized to others. So you'll recall that his first uh, thought after his enlightenment was, there's no point trying to teach this, and no one will ever understand, so this will only re, uh, be re, <coughs> will only uh, bring weariness and, and uh, vexation for me. And then the Brahma Sahampati appeared and invited the Buddha to teach, out of compassion for the, those with a little dust in their eyes. Despite these difficulties, the Buddha did try to explain the nature of Nibbāna on several occasions. In the Udāna, for instance, he spoke of Nibbāna as something beyond this world or another world, beyond coming, going or staying, beyond the four elements representing material reality, and also beyond all material, immaterial realms. So, that is... The Udana. So these are <coughs> two um, two passages. Firstly, um, the uh, uh, the first sutta in section eight. So Udana eight point one. There is that sphere that and that is ayatana is the Pali. There is that sphere that ayatana where there is no earth, no water, and no fire, nor wind. No sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There, there is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere, this ayatana, I call neither a coming, nor a going, nor a staying still neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. And then, 
The sphere, Ayatana, he pointed out, uh, objectless and without any support, constitutes the end of suffering. This description shows that Nibbana refers to a dimension completely different from ordinary experiences of the world, and also different from experiences of meditative absorption. Other discourses refer to such a totally different experience as a non-manifestative consciousness. That's uh, one of uh, Lumpur Sumedho's favorite um, passages, Vinyanang Anidasanang, the uh, non-manifestative, non-manifestative consciousness. And so that um, uh, you find that in the, um, uh, in the Kevada Sutta, and also in the Invitation to the Brahma, Sutta number 49 in the Majima. Vinyanang Anidasanang Anantang Sabato Pabang is a description of the awakened mind. So the Vinyanang Anidasana, anidasana means non-manifest or invisible. Uh, and it's one of the few places where consciousness, Vinyana is used not to mean a kind of discriminative or dualistic consciousness, but uh, awakened awareness. So uh, vinyanang, the awareness, which is anidasana, um, formless or non-manifest, anantang, limitless, and then sabatopabang, radiant in all directions, or it can mean accessible from every side. A related nuance comes up in a somewhat poetic passage that compares the unstationed consciousness of an arahant to a ray of sunlight passing through a window of a room without an opposing wall. The ray does not land anywhere. So both of those um, passages are there in the island in uh, various different um, uh, expositions. Another discourse in the Udana describes Nibbana with the help of a set of par- past participles as not born, ajata, not become, abhuta, not made, akata, and not conditioned, asankata. So this is the the, the uh, verses that we chant, ati bhikkave ajatang abhutang, and so on. It, uh, is that, that very verse. And it's... It is... Uh, 8.3, it's the third sutta in the eighth section of the Udana. There is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But, since there is this unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. This passage again emphasizes that Nibbāna is completely other in that it is not born or made, not produced or conditioned. It is owing to this otherness that Nibbāna constitutes freedom from birth, jāti, becoming, bhāva, karma, and formations, sankhāra. Birth, jāti, in a way symbolizes existence in time, while Nibbāna, not being subject to birth or death, is timeless or beyond time. These passages show that Nibbāna is markedly different from any other experience, sphere, state or realm. They clearly indicate that as long as there is even a subtle sense of a somewhere, a something or a someone, it is not yet an experience of Nibbāna. 
So, uh, and uh, uh, this is how one really needs to talk about the, the, the realization of Nibbana. It's letting go of self and other, of subject and object, um, letting go of time, letting go of identity, but also letting go of location. So it's uh, um, the chapter that there's um, uh, passages from the Udana area in the island is called um, The Unconditioned and Non-Locality. Because even if there's no self and no time, selflessness and timelessness might be being experienced in an apparent here. <laughs> but it's a letting go of here-ness as well. And as Venerable Acham Mahabur put it, um, uh, the the insight that arose that took, that triggered his own uh, full enlightenment was if there is a center of a if there is a center of a the knower of a knower anywhere that is the essence of birth in a level of being. If there is like a center or a, a point at which the knowing uh, is is held, then that is the the um, the essence of birth in the level in a level of being. So before we go on to annihilation, any questions? Yes, James. Is an arahant or a Buddha supposedly experiencing Nibbana all the time, or is it just... So how are the interacting with the You have to be an arahant and find out. <laughs> but they still see things in, it, in space and time when they're interacting with people on a normal level. Yeah, the, well, the, the Buddha is teaching and interacting, and people are going about their business, and so that uh, um, it, it's one of those things where the, in the suttas, the um, it's like the the quality of nibbana it, it comes across as a, a fundamental attitude. It's like a a radical peacefulness of attitude. In the commentaries, it's more presented as a kind of state. A thing that happens, and if you're, uh, uh, I can't quote particular passages off the top of my head, but it's like, oh, when an arahant is realizing nibbana, then they're kind of totally dissociated, they're kind of zoned out from the sense world, um, and that an arahant isn't experiencing nibbana all of the time. But um, that doesn't really come; it doesn't really come across that way. And you never find, as far as I'm aware, uh, as far as I'm aware. You never come across the Buddha or any of the enlightened disciples speaking about Nibbana in that way. But more, it's, it's representing a, uh, a fundamental attitude. Um, and like that, but also it's an attitude that can't be described like that. That's why I really like that passage about the Buddha speaking about the nature of the Tathagata. You can't define it in terms of like the the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So the subjective experience, you you can't. There's no thing to hang it on. You can't describe what that is. Um, but that's not a kind of spaced out or disconnected from the sense world, but rather um, the uh, it's connected to. To the sense world, the people and things and actions and, and choices, um, but yet from a, a with, with a, a fundamental attitude of non-ownership, non-entanglement, non-non-grasping, and non, uh, yeah, and of not self. Location, even. Yes. Yeah, because the yeah, location, three-dimensional space, only has meaning in relationship to to the. Material form, 
mind has no has no substance. So where and location doesn't apply to mind. You might say, you know, my mind and tap your skull, but awareness doesn't really apply to any of the Namakandas. It's a relationship of looking at somebody else with the from position, isn't it? When they're talking to somebody, they're still coming from it. Yeah, from a, from, a, from a conventional point of view, in terms of the sense world, but when you when there's a, a close uh, a close examination, okay, I'm sitting here, you're sitting there. Where is this happening? When you look to see, well, where where is the mind? Where is experience? Oh, well, it's in the sala, <laughs> but where is the sala? The sala is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The sala is in your mind. The experience of this moment is fabricated from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, memory, language, imagination. This is a mental event. I close my eyes, you vanish. I open my eyes, you reappear. So when the Buddha says, what is the world? The world, the eye is the world, seeing is the world, the ear is the world, hearing is the world. So when you say, oh, you're over there, it's just, um, those are just patterns of, of eye consciousness, sound consciousness. Yeah, and so that the, um, uh, the in the world of the, the aspect of material form, yeah, there's, there's geography and space, and so those kind of things uh, pertain. But in the realm of mind, space doesn't apply. How could it? Well, even the even a word like unified doesn't. Well, we'll get onto that in a minute. But it's like it's it's as though it's imagining. Although these separate bits that are joined together, but even that is is uh, is it, you're taking the model of our, our three our sort of three dimensional experience and applying it uh, to a a non spatial experience. So that's why that when the Buddha says the. The Tathagata can't be uh, cannot be uh, reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. He is profound. There, there, the Tathagata is that that awake mind is as a fundamental quality of suchness of of, of being, but it's you, you can't define that, locate that, or limit that in in, in any way. And so that, as he said, the Tathagata is. But he, uh, he is profound, boundless, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So you can't, and you know, the thinking mind likes to have labels and concepts. And they, oh, I've got it figured out now. It's like the unified field theory. That's it. Yeah, I've got it. No. It's like Richard Feynman saying anyone who says that they understand uh, quantum mechanics is lying. And he was a quantum mechanic. <laughs> no one really understands it. So it's the same way you can't, the, the Buddha is saying, whatever you conceive it to be, the fact is always other than that. But the thinking mind is addicted to conceptions, you think. But you, it can only conceive in terms of language, in terms of uh, memory, in terms of three-dimensional space, 
you know, that, that mathematicians and physicists can they can draw equate write up equations to represent ten dimensional space or twenty three dimensional space or or the the the, the most impressive one that I came across was um, uh, a, a theory of of matter and reality which depends on a system of um, it was one hundred ninety six thousand eight hundred eighty four dimension <coughs> dimensions. That's a lot of dimensions. 196,884 dimensions. Get your mind around that. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, unimaginable. And that, that was part of, I feel, of the, the Buddha's brilliance. It's like he knew you can't represent it, therefore don't try. And then he knew that from the get go. And even though his contemporary philosophers that, uh, and people would come up with their own descriptions or their ways of symbolizing or modeling it, he had this profound realization like, no, you don't need to give it an image. You, don't need to, you can just say, this is the, the work necessary to, to arrive at the realization. Once, once it's known, then it speaks for itself. You don't have to, to have a, a concept that hasn't got enough dimensions to represent the reality. Like, I can say the word glass, but I can't pour water into the word glass. Or I could make a drawing of a glass, and I couldn't pour water into the drawing, but you need a three-dimensional glass to put the water in. The concept of the word, you know, or a two-dimensional drawing, is not enough to hold the three-dimensional water. So we're trying to hold a, a, a kind of a, a multi-dimensional reality in a, in a um, two-dimensional concept. So that's my perspective on it. Anyway. So let's see if we can get to the uh, conventionally speaking end of the chapter. <laughs> Nibbana, neither all-embracing unity nor annihilation. In order to further clarify the distinctive character of the Buddha's conception of Nibbana, in the remainder of this chapter, I will set it off against the realization of an all-embracing unity, as, envis as envisaged by non-dual religious traditions, and also against annihilationism. While early Buddhism does not deny the distinction between subject and object, it does not treat this distinction as particularly important. Both are insubstantial, the subject being nothing other than a complex of interactions with the world, object while to speak of a world is to speak of what is being perceived by the subject. So, and then again, that same passage, the Buddha uh, says, um, what is the world? Uh, uh, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in this Dhamma and discipline. And then he says, and what is the means whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So that is in... Uh, I think it's the Salyatana, it's on the section 35 of the Sanyutta Nikaya, and I believe it's Sutta 116, if I'm not mistaken. So, that, and what is the, what is the world? That whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is the world. So, that the, the Buddha was a phenomenologist, really. That whereby that we are, are there, one is a conceiver of the world, a perceiver of the world, that's called the world. So that we don't experience 
the same world, we experience our, our mind's version of the world. And when that coordinates with other people's versions, we call ourselves sane. When it doesn't coordinate with other people's versions of the world, we, we are called insane, in varying degrees. And, and, the, and the Arahant is the only perfectly sane being. The rest of us are in varying degrees of insanity, where my world doesn't match yours. Unity, in terms of subjective experience, entails a merging of the subject with the object. Experiences of this kind are often the outcome of deep levels of concentration. Nibbana, on the other hand, entails a complete giving up of both subject and object. So I often talk about subjectless, objectless awareness in this respect. Not a merger of the two. So giving up subject and object, not a merger of the two. Such an experience constitutes an escape from the entire field of cognition. Though Nibbāna partakes of non-duality, insofar as it has no counterpart, its implications nevertheless go far beyond experiences of oneness or unity. And, uh, once again, there's some handy passages to refer to. One is from the, the very first sutta of the Majjhima Nikāya, the uh, root of all things. And... Uh, Let's see. They perceive all as all. Having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves apart from all. They conceive all to be mine. They delight in the all. Why is that? Because they've not un fully understood it, I say. They perceive Nibbana as Nibbana. Having perceived Nibbana as Nibbana, they conceive themselves as Nibbana. They conceive themselves in Nibbana. They conceive themselves apart from Nibbāna. They conceive Nibbāna to be mine. They delight in Nibbāna. Why is that? Because they've not fully understood it, I say. And then, the, in the later part, that's from um, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the first sutta in the Majjhima. And then from the um, uh, Invitation to the Brahma, this is the one where you have Vinyanang and Yasanang. The Buddha says, having directly known that which is not commensurate with the allness of all, I did not claim to be all. I did not claim to be in all. I did not claim to be apart from all. I did not claim all to be mine. I did not affirm the all. And so that uh, um, you have kind of that... Uh, um, the sort of glib way that people say that, you know, Buddhist, uh, um, or they tell that joke uh, about the, the Dalai Lama goes up to the hot dog stand and says, make me one with everything. <laughs> so it's not a Buddhist joke, because a, a Buddhist wouldn't say, make me one with everything. It's not a Buddhist uh, comment. But, uh, it's a very common joke you get in the, in the States where they are fond of, ham, uh, of uh, hot dogs. Make me one with everything. Mustard, onions, ketchup, <laughs> pickles, you know. So I said, no, it's not a good joke, because the Buddha, the Buddha never said, make me one with everything. <laughs> Experiences of oneness were actually not unknown to the early Buddhist community, but even their most refined forms, experienced with the immaterial attainments, were not considered to be the final goal. 
Just as the Buddha himself did not feel satisfied with what he had experienced based on the indications received from his first teachers, so he admonished his disciples to go beyond and transcend such, quote, transcendental, unquote, experiences. So the states of profound absorption and um, uh, states of infinite consciousness and uh, infinite space and, and such like. Some of his disciples had achieved various non-dual experiences, while others had realized full awakening without experiencing any of the immaterial attainments. The latter were the living proof that such attainments, far from being identifiable with Nibbana, are not even necessary for its realization. In order to properly assess the early Buddhist concept of Nibbana, it needs not only to be distinguished from views based on experiences of unity, but also has to be differentiated from the theories of annihilation uh, held among the deterministic and materialistic schools of ancient India. On several occasions, the Buddha was in fact wrongly accused of being an, an, an annihilationist. His humorous reply to such allegations was that he could rightly be called so if this meant the annihilation of unwholesome states of mind. There's, uh, there's one place where he says, um, the, uh, yeah, um, the, the, you say I'm negative uh, or I, I'm, a, I'm an annihilationist. Yes, I, I teach the annihilation of greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, in the um, discourse on the simile of the snake, the Agala uh, Dupama Sutta, he says, I have, um, let's see, It's now escaping me. I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some summoners and Brahmins thus. The summoner Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented. Bhikkhus, both now and formerly, what I teach is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. And then in the same sutta, this is 22 in the Majjhima Nikai, he says, Here, Bhikkhus, someone has the view. This is self. This is the universe. After death I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. They hear the Tathagata, or a disciple of the Tathagata, teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, biases, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for Nibbāna. They think thus, oh, So I shall be annihilated, so I shall perish, so I shall be no more. Then they sorrow, grieve, and lament, they weep, beating their breast, and become distraught. misunderstanding the, the teaching. A consideration of the discourses shows that Nibbāna is described in both positive and negative terms. Negative expressions occur frequently in a practical context, indicating the work still to be done. Other passages, however, refer to Nibbāna with a variety of positive epithets, calling it a state of peace, of purity and of freedom, sublime and auspicious, Wonderful and marvelous, an island, a shelter, and a refuge. And um, 
in the Sanyuta Nikaya gives a long list of such epithets, and we have an even longer list in here. If you want, we, uh, Venerable um, Hasapanya went through the entire, seemingly the entire canon, and came up with every kind of um, uh, term used to refer, refer to the transcendental reality. The happiness of freedom contingent upon having realized Nibbana constitutes the highest possible form of happiness. Described as a source of supreme happiness, as a state of freedom, sublime and auspicious, Nibbana seems to have little in common with mere annihilation. In fact, according to the Buddha's penetrating analysis, the attempt to annihilate self still revolves around a state, a state uh, p -p -p, still revolves around a sense of selfhood though being motivated by disgust with this self. In this way, annihilationism is still in bondage to a sense of self, comparable to a dog moving in circles around a post to which it is bound. So that's the uh, Panchataya Sutta, the five and the three, Sutta 102 in the Majima. And the Buddha, like, he says, like, as if a dog is tied to a post, whether it circles around one way clockwise or around the other way, it, whether it circles around being attached to a sense of self or it circles around being uh, attached to annihilation of self, it's still attached to the same post. Such craving for non-existence, vibhava tanha, uh, inde uh, forms indeed an obstacle to the realization of Nibbāna. As the Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta explains, to think in terms of I shall not be is a form of conceiving as much as the thought I shall be. Both are to be left behind in order to proceed to awakening. To maintain that an arahant will be annihilated at death is a misunderstanding, since such a proposition argues the annihilation of something that cannot be found in a substantial sense even while one is still alive. And that's a famous dialogue of the Buddha with Anuradha, that's in the Sangita again, quoted in the island, where in the chapter called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened. Um, and the Buddha is saying, even, in, even with uh, the Tathagata sitting here in front of you, you can't just define the Tathagata as being in the five khandas or apart from the five khandas or having the five khandas or not having the five khandas. So uh, he said uh, the Tathagata is unapprehendable here and now. Therefore, any statement concerning the existence or annihilation of an arahant after death turns out to be meaningless. What Nibbāna does imply is that the ignorant belief in a substantial self is annihilated, an annihilation which has already taken place with stream entry. With full awakening, then, even the subtlest traces of grasping at a sense of self are forever annihilated, which is but a negative way of expressing the freedom gained through re realization. Fully awakened to the reality of selflessness, the Arahant is free indeed, like a bird in the sky, leaving no tracks as it says in the Dhammapada. Also, there's a, a very helpful little an analogy that I like to use, which is, if you, um, it doesn't really work in England so well because we don't have so many snakes, but <laughs> if you're walking through the gra long grass and you see a round shape you know, on the path, <laughs> it's a snake, and you feel afraid because you, you think it's a snake and you're about to tread on it. And then, uh, you, and then you look again, and you realize, oh, it's not a snake; it's a coil of rope. So, what happened to the snake when the rope was recognized? Nothing happened to the snake because there never was one. Like so, well, where, and so that the said, where does the self go? Where does the being go? It's like, well, being and going 
and where don't apply. So it's like the, nothing happens, nothing is lost. There wasn't, a, there wasn't, there was a snake there that then went somewhere, but there never was a snake. It was just a, um, a, a mistaken view. And so what got annihilated or what got changed was the, the view. Any final questions, reflections, comments, thoughts? Like, um, when, when I think I'm sure that I understand something... When you think that you're sure that you understand something... Yes, like, when, I'm, when I'm sure that, okay, I get it, now I understand it, now I get it. And then later, sooner or later, I completely don't know, like a completely... Just, it feels like a like blank... Mm-hmm. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> it's really embarrassing for a couple of days, and I, and then I get something a little bit and then you, you, you have a, okay, this seems to work this way, and, and, and given that it works this way, we can make these machines work, or these medicines can operate, or these particular structures stay up. We're not quite sure why it does that, or how it does that, but this is how we think it works. And then someone comes along and says, well, actually, we discovered that, that there's this other bit of chemistry going on. Oh, that's how it works. Oh. So you, it doesn't mean that that everything that went before was completely bad and wrong. It was a, it was a reasonable working hypothesis, but then it gets re- replaced later on when you realize things a bit more more clearly. And so um, you can't say what the scientists will have discovered in a hundred years' time, but you can uh, you can know for sure that what they know now is not the last word. But it's but if but it's if you recognize well, it's good enough to be going along with. Particularly if you recognize it's just a working hypothesis, it's just good enough to be going on, on with, that you're never going to fix it as a, okay, now I've got it, now this is the right thing. And so that little phrase of the Buddha, whatever you conceive it to be, the fact is always other than that, is helpful. Yena, yena, hi manyanti, tatatanghoti, anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is other than that. So, yeah, it's like any concept is, can only be partial. It can't be the whole story. It can't be the whole story, and so that uh, if you if you bear it in mind, then uh, you are able to use the, the sort of your kind of working hypothesis and your kind of a, a good enough. Well, this is I think this is what's going on. Okay, well let's just work on this basis and see what happens. Rather than now I've got it, and then being oh no, that's awful. That's a disaster. I was wrong. Like when, when I was a, st- a student, I, I had uh, a, f- a physiology professor Im- uh, uh, who taught uh, immunology. And he was really different from the other people in the physiology department because everyone else seemed to have the idea, okay, now we've got it figured out. And well, there's just a few little details, but we'll get them soon and then we'll understand. And he, all these different uh, uh, things. We did, mostly did neurophysiology, but... Uh, but he uh, he was had a, uh, a completely different attitude. Uh, he said, uh, <clears throat> "Whereas 
uh, other people sort of resented gaps in knowledge and sort of kind of hoped that, that they weren't really there and that they didn't really matter. If, they, if there were gaps, they didn't really matter. He was, uh, he quite delighted in that. And I remember his one particular thing he said, well, there's 11 stages in this process. Stages one to five we understand perfectly. It's really clear how that operates. Stages six to 11, we've got that figured out. Stage five to six, that can't happen. It, well, it can happen, but it needs to be at 400 atmospheres pressure at about 250 degrees centigrade. And then it would take a few hours. But your body does this all the time at normal temperature and pressure every day. And it can't do that. And he, was, he enjoyed the fact that it was totally impossible. And he said, and the, and, the, and the interesting thing is that in the process of nailing down exactly how that bit works, we then uncover another dozen mysteries along the way that are, all, are equally impossible. And so he, he, um, he enjoyed the fact that we were never going to figure it out. And he was a very contrasting character to the other people. <laughs> We're trying to nail it down. I think you know we, we've got it. We've got, now this is the we've got the we've got the final picture. This is it. Like uh, the physics department of uh, Harvard University, um, they closed the postgraduate program in the in the eighteen nineties because they thought there wasn't anything more to discover. <laughs> there was just two things. So like radiation was this kind of strange glowing in the dark. They weren't quite sure how that worked, and then the the uh, and then the emitting of light by black bodies. And that they, I think that was it. And they, um, unfortunately, that led to Albert Einstein and Max Planck <laughs> discovering uh, radiation and you know, the atomic world and the relativity. <laughs> so they opened up the postgraduate department. But they thought they understood everything. There's no point being a postgrad physicist because we understand everything. There's no more, no more research to be done. <laughs> so that's a stupid approach but rather to just say okay well i think i understand enough to get through today and let's see where it goes so then you can be pleasantly surprised oh i had that totally wrong interesting <laughs> it really looked like it was this but actually it was that uh -huh. i had to go left in order to go right hmm. and then you learn along the way but it's not a sense there's no sense of loss or or anything having been wrong, you just that was the best you could do you know, for the time being. Okay, I think it's enough for today. Time being what it is. <laughs>